thank you that um, we are here to start a new study. Thank you, Lord, that um, thank you that it will connect with all the other studies that we've been doing over the years. Thank you, Lord, because it is your book, one book, and the message and the threads in it connect and join up. And in the end, we we're sure we've read this before. We, we're sure we read it yesterday because it's so familiar to us. So I thank you that you are becoming more familiar through your word. And I thank you that we are learning deeper and deeper things about you. And I ask, Lord God, that you would open our ears and our eyes and our hearts. And more particularly, that you would so soften our will that we would decide that we will do what it is we are hearing you call us to do. And I pray, Lord God, that we would do that because I know it will fill us with joy, um, but particularly because it will result in your glory. And for that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, you know by now that we are a fellowship of believers, the fellowship of the burning heart. And we are, I, I stole that from A.W. Tozer, you know that too. He wrote a book called The Pursuit of God. If you've never read that book, read that book. It is probably one of the top five books I have ever read. Um, <coughs> And he stole it from Luke's gospel when the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and Jesus comes and walks alongside them. Roger, hello, Jane. So nice to see you. <coughs> yeah, you came from Wells, didn't you? We are very impressed, Roger. Oh, my goodness. We are impressed. And we've even got hot chocolate. Do you want hot chocolate? <laughs> hello, Jane. Nice to see you. Yeah, lovely to see you. Oh, we've got that on microphone now. Our kiss. Our kiss. It's probably recorded upstairs. They'll wonder what we're doing in here. So, yeah, so um, uh, A.W. Tozer took it from Luke's Gospel, the, the two, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, leaving Jerusalem uh, after the crucifixion, downhearted, wondering what's happening, not being sure of what they believed and why and how that all panned out. And that so often is us, isn't it? So often we, you know, to do we believe the right thing? Do we go the right way? Is, is this really all true? And suddenly Jesus appears to them, walks along with them. They don't recognize him for quite a long time. And isn't that true of us too? We have things in our lives we don't recognize. And then suddenly they sit and they eat and he shares food with them. And when he breaks the bread, they realize in that instant uh, that here is the Christ. Here is the resurrected Jesus Christ. And uh, when they go back to the disciples in Jerusalem, they say, didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened up the scriptures to us? And that burning is really, I think, it's, it's, where, it's where I want to be all the time. I want my heart to burn within me as I read the scriptures and connect the dots. And, and I hope that you want that too because it's a fabulous, fabulous place to be. So we are Desiring Truth is a fellowship of the burning heart. We are dedicated to growing in our knowledge of God, the one who gave us life, abundant life, real life. And we are dedicated to growing in that knowledge for our own sake, because at heart we're still selfish creatures, but also because we want to take that knowledge out into the communities that we live in. Uh, I, I sometimes listen to Anne Graham Lotz. Does anyone know, you know who she is? I think she's just written a new study, which I haven't even looked at, but it's called The Final Hour. And everywhere you look on the internet, uh, 
if you look if you listen to bible teaching or bible believing bible teaching people they will tell you they th all of them think across the board that we are in the last of the last of the last days and in the last hour and so if that's true um it's imperative that we take out what we know and so at the start of 2018 uh, that's what the focus will be this year. We are a lighthouse. Uh, whether we know it or not, we, are, we have the light. We are the light. We are to shine for the Lord Jesus. And as we get to know him better, we will do that better. And we are to witness to the resurrection life that is in Christ Jesus and that we have been given. Um, the reality of our, of our lives now is that we have already been resurrected with Jesus Christ. Spiritually, we are resurrected. We are waiting for the fulfillment of that in our body. Now, the thing is, if you hear that truth, and, and we'll read from it, we'll read it from Scripture in a minute to back it up. But if you hear that, and that's not the experience of your life, you need to be praying to the Lord that he will give you that experience, that witness of the Spirit within you, that you are living a powerful, victorious life that you couldn't live in any other way except that Jesus lives within you by his Spirit. And we're going to st start in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 18. Um, I pray, this is Paul praying for the Ephesians and for us, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. What Paul is saying here is that Christ has been resurrected, and in verse 7, sorry, in verse 6 and 7, he says, and God has raised us up with him with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That's how I can say that we who believe in the Lord Jesus have resurrection life. We are resurrected spiritually. We were dead 
and now we live. And we are not only alive, we are raised up with Christ, seated in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, every power, every dominion, far above all, every name that has named in this age and in the age to come. If we are seated with Christ, what is under our feet? Or under his feet, we're his body, so we are his feet in a way. So what's, what's under his feet? Everything's under his feet. Everything. We are raised with Christ and we are seated with him in heavenly places. In him. We are in him. And in chapter 1 we are told that we are his body, the church, which is his body. So that we are already the recipients of, res of resurrection life, life that will never end. Eternal, abundant, wonderful life. And all that remains for us is to receive the resurrection body that will fit our resurrection spirit. That's all that remains. This body is corrupting, as you know. Uh, we've read that so many times. Um, but the, uh, the body that is being prepared for us or has been prepared for us will be glorious. And it will match the glorious resurrection that we have already gone through. In God's eyes, you are already glorified. Romans chapter 8 says, um, and those whom he, well, I'll read it properly. Romans 8, uh, about tw uh, verse 28, beginning. Um, sorry, let me get there. Romans 8 uh, verse um, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified past tense. We are justified past, we were called past tense. We are justified past tense. We are glorified past tense. When God sees you, he sees the resurrection you, the resurrection life that you have been given. He does not see the way that you were when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And in fact, he doesn't even see your trespasses and sins. Of course he could, but he chooses not to. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your transgressions from you. Um, he refuses to act on the basis of your sins. That means he refuses even to remember your sins. Because to remember is to act on God's part. When the word remember is used about God in, in the Old Testament, it means he started to act. Remember when he said, and God remembered Sarah, and she conceived and had a son. God remembers and he acts. In, in the act of remembering, he is doing something. But the reason, that he, so the reason he doesn't remember our sins is that he's already done something about our sins. He's already put them on Christ Jesus. They are already dealt with, already judged. That's why he can see you in the resurrection life that you have. You have victorious resurrection, powerful life. You can't always um, understand it or experience it, but tied as you are to an earthly body on an earthly planet. But nonetheless, it is true. You are victorious, and one day you will live in that victorious, overwhelming conquering that has already been achieved for you. Um, 
And the reason that God has left you here, you're already, you already have this spiritual resurrection. It's already happened. The only reason you're here is for you to live out that resurrection life in front of other people. For you to live and to talk and to behave and to think and to feel in ways that will shout glory, that will shout resurrection to the people that you mix with. Um, and if, if that's true, if the only reason you're here is to do that, to witness to this resurrection life, then if God is who he says he is, and if God is for you and not against you, he would be calling you on, calling you on, calling you on, calling you on. He will hate anything in your life that holds you back. He will do everything in his power, which is everything in the universe, to stop you doing a thing that he knows will hurt you. He will never, ever allow that to continue and will do whatever it takes to stop you doing it. But conversely, he will do everything to enable you to live victorious lives. I, it's, I, I, I don't have enough words. You'd think I do because I don't stop talking. But, you know, <laughs> you, know you, you don't have enough words, really, do you? How could you possibly have enough words to explain this or get to the bottom of it? That God is for me. He is for me, and he will do everything for me, everything that is necessary for me to live this resurrection life. And part of what he says is necessary for me is for me to be involved in the working out of that resurrection life because he knows that my being involved in it and overcoming and being victorious will fill me with such joy that that will be a witness as I go. Wow, look at me, I actually did that. I actually did that. Well, God did it through me, but I was there and it, when it happened. Yes. So, um, 1 Corinthians. Um, the reason, uh, when I first thought about 1 Corinthians, I've said many times, I don't have super spiritual, you know, beams of light coming into my mind. I just think, oh, 1 Corinthians. I haven't studied that for a while. Let's do that. And then I find in the way that God does, it's just like, wow, this is exactly where we've been. First Corinthians, resurrection life will follow, be ready, and knowing peace in a shaking world. And it will follow Philippians that we did before that, and Ezekiel that we did before that. It is amazing how God just connects, connects, connects these things, these studies that we're doing, even through my kind of lackadaisical kind of, oh yeah, well, we'll do this. It's amazing to me that God does that until I read, but God is for me. <laughs> he is for me. So um, we're going to study First Corinthians, and I think it's quite interesting right up front um, to, to understand that um, people all the time talk about, don't they? They talk about, I wish you hear them say, I wish we could go back to the New Testament church, the way it was in the beginning, you know, without all this fuss and all this tradition and all this stuff, you know, and all this. Oh, wouldn't it be so great to go back to the New Testament church? And then you read First Corinthians, <laughs> and you see, this church is about, it's no more than 20 years after Christ died. This is a, at most 20, 20, 25 years, I suppose it could be, after Christ died. This is a New Testament church, and this is a church you would never join. <laughs> you would never join this church, because it's in a really bad way. 
And the thing about it is, the thing that's so amazing to me as I read it and start to put it, you know, join the dots, as it were, and compare it to where we are today, is that it is exactly like so much of the Western church. It is exactly like that. And yet, Paul, well, God, through Paul, doesn't say, I mean, I'm going to walk away from that church. They're not doing anything right. I mean, they're, they're in such flagrant sin. They don't understand anything. They haven't got anything right. They're just a complete mess. It's to that church that God writes this letter. And in this letter, the climax of it, chapter 15, in this letter to this group of people living in an abject, in open sin, he tells them about the resurrection of Christ. It is the resurrection chapter in Scripture, and it's to that church that he writes it. He tells them in a twinkling of an eye, in a moment, the, this, Im, this mortal will put on immortal. This perishable will put on imperishable. We will all be changed. He talks about the resurrection of Christ and how that will impact me and you in a letter to a group of people who can't do anything right. He writes in it, it's even reported that, that one of you has his father's wife. He talks about... Immorality and fornication and homosexuality and drunkenness and adultery and slander and stealing and envy and all of the sins you could possibly imagine he writes about and names in this letter. And at the same time, he tells them that they will be resurrected as Christ has been resurrected. Now, we could say, well, there's probably not, they're probably not all Christians. And that may well be true. There may have been people in those congreg- in those house churches, because it wouldn't have been one big congregation, in those little house churches who weren't yet Christians. There may have been people in there who were there to disrupt. But just as Jesus had said in Matthew, don't try to pull up the tares, just wait for the harvest. Because if you try to pull up the tares, you're going to hurt the real church. So just as he says that, Paul does that. And in his opening remarks, he writes to them, you go to a house church, you belong to a house church, therefore I am treating you as a believer. And he writes to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Can you imagine? You're the one who's having his father's wife and this, church, this letter is read out in your house group. And he starts to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, and all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. It's almost unbelievable that he would write to these people in this way. And there's something so important, I think, for us to understand in there. We, with our critical nature and our judgmental nature and our so such superior understanding that, I mean, I've studied the Bible for a while and, and what I don't know is not worth knowing. And I really have my doctrine set. There's no area in my doctrine that is even vaguely wrong. So you just better follow me. That's the Western church. That's how we are. We don't even countenance the idea that, well, possibly I might have got a few things wrong, you know, maybe one or two. 
But Paul doesn't do that. He writes into a church that is struggling to, to understand how to live the life that they've been given. And they are making mistake after mistake after mistake. And they are bad mistakes and bad sin. But he does not come at them with, from that viewpoint from the beginning. He comes and says, this is who you are. This is who you are. I know you're not living like it. And we're going to deal with some of that later on. But I'm going to start this way with you. Because only a saint can live like a saint. And if you don't know you're a saint, you will always live like a sinner. That's the basis. And that speaks to me because, you know, it's so easy to judge. It's so easy to be critical. Oh, they don't do it right over there. You know, the preacher, I mean, he doesn't say anything that stirs me up. You know, I go there week after week and it's the same old boring Bible stuff. And, you know, the music, the music is so bad. I mean, that guitarist, he can't even play right. <laughs> you know, that's what we do. That's church for us. That's how we look at our church. That's not how Paul looked at the church. That is not how he looked at the church. He looked at the church and he understood, I cannot touch this. This is the body of Christ. I am not allowed to touch this. Jesus had said in Matthew 16, you know, that went on Peter's confession that, that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, I will build my church on that and the gates of Hades will not over, overcome it. You and I, with our critical, judgmental eyes and thoughts are not allowed to speak against the body of Christ. You cannot do that, nor can I. None of us are allowed to do that. We are called to be discerning and to make judgments about behavior, but we cannot go in all guns blazing and tell them they're all sinners going to hell or they're not believers or they're this or they're that because that is not our place. We are to live the resurrection life in front of people. We are to speak the truth in front of people. And we are to pray every day, God, Lord Jesus, fill me with your grace and truth. Fill me with the grace to speak the truth in love. Fill me with that. And that's how Paul starts. That's how he starts this letter. If I'd been writing to these people, I'd have said, I've heard from Chloe that you're doing this, 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 and this. You know, but he doesn't. He starts off with this. This is who you are. Yes, he goes in and he's strong with the things he wants to talk to them about because he has authority. But he makes sure that they understand. This is who I'm talking to. I'm talking to people who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. I'm talking to people who have received the Spirit of God. I'm talking to people who should understand what I say. And I'm speaking this way to you because I love you because Christ loves you. Um, he's going to, I won't, you're going to do the overview. If, you, if you've got the workbook, you're going to be doing an overview for the next week, which is, will cause you to have read through the whole book of Corinthians um, in the week. And uh, probably, I don't know because I haven't looked at it, you'll get, you'll, they'll ask you for chapter themes and segments. And there are basically three segments in 1 Corinthians. The first six chapters deal with uh, things that he's heard about. He's received a letter about this church and he's going to deal with them, those things in the first six chapters. And then from about verse chapter 7 on till about uh, maybe 14, uh, maybe not, I can't remember now, 12, he's going to talk about um, some things he wants to impart to them, some, some things about how you do church 
and how it's energized. Um, and then in chapter 15, as I say, he, you reach the pinnacle and he talks about the resurrection of Christ and how that resurrection has impacted and will impact them. And he wants them to understand all of that because our job, their job and our job, as those who have the witness of the Spirit within us, is to live the life that we have been given, to live in victory, to live in power. And of course, we're humans, as I said, we still live in this body, we have enemies, our own flesh, the world, the, the Satan, they're all our enemies and they are coming at us all the time. But what 1 Corinthians tells us, what Paul tells us is, you have the power to be victorious because you are in Christ Jesus and he has defeated every enemy. And it's only if you truly believe that that you will be able to live the resurrection life. And the problem that we have in our day and in our time, most Christians don't really believe it. They don't. They believe the words, but they don't really lay hold of it for themselves. You know, I said about, um, I've said it a lot of times, and I know it's a stupid example, but, you know, the chair, that chair's really strong, and it's made of great metal, and it's really comfortable, and, yeah, you could say, yeah, I really, I know that, that looks like a great chair. Oh, I, I know that's going to take my weight. Yeah, I really know if I sat on it, it would not collapse. But until you sit on the chair, you haven't really trusted what I've said. That's what believing is. You have to sit in the chair. You have to take... God at his word and everything that he tells you you have to say yes that will impact my life I will sit down on that chair um, in um, I don't think in first Corinthians but in um, uh, well yeah in first Corinthians what we get is the reality that God Christ is building his church and he's building it with people like you and me, which means it'll be a mess for a long time. It'll be a mess. And that's what I have loved so much about this ministry is that as we've gone on together, I can see and experience the reality of family, that God has put us in community, that we really do care about each other. If you're new to us, to this uh, ministry, then maybe you haven't experienced that yet, but that is real. It's real. We care about each other. We, uh, we love each other. We may not see each other. I mean, I live a quite a long way away, so I see people less than anyone else, I would think. But, but this is a family. This is a building that God is building. And it's so strong because of it. You know, we have disagreements, of course. You know, and you're sometimes right. <laughs> not often, but sometimes. <laughs> We have those disagreements, we have those things, but God is building us. What is it Peter says? That living stones, we are living stones being built together. And that is a wonderful experience. It's what Paul says to the Corinthians, isn't it? That it's not me, it's God's work. Yes, 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 yes. It's everywhere in the New Testament, yeah. And here, yes, it's, it's God's work. So um, what I wanted to spend today on, because this is the introduction, it's not even the, o we were not going to do an overview, because um, you're doing the, 
precept study. You've got the workbook, some of you, and that's, they're great. So I really encourage you to do it. But I'm not teaching from that study. So I'm just going through the book and doing what I always do, which is never doing what from the study. <laughs> so, um, which was always confusing before because you expected me to be <laughs> from it. But um, so, uh, so today I want to start somewhere completely different because. Uh, what, how the Bible describes those people who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus, in God in the Old Testament, looking forward to Messiah, and in the New Testament, trusting in the Lord Jesus, is that we are described as sheep. And throughout the Bible, we are told that uh, God is our shepherd, and we are told in John chapter 10 now that Jesus is the good shepherd. And I wanted to look at the uh, Psalm 23. I know you all know it. It's very familiar psalm but i wanted to look at that psalm because psalm 23 is the resurrection life it is the life of a believer wrapped up in that psalm and it's quite incredible that it is actually because it's not a very long psalm you could probably recite it to me um but uh well let's read it somebody read psalm 23 please Thank you. So you might it's, you don't see anything about resurrection in that chapter. You don't see uh, anything really about life, but uh, this is resurrection life. It begins with, um, it's a description of what it looks like and how it feels. And it begins with a statement by David, the Lord is my shepherd. And it ends with a, uh, the last statement, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It is the, the, the account of a person who knows who he is, where he is, and where he's going. It is a, the account of a person who totally understands who his God is, and because of that, knows certain things are true about him, and that he will never, ever, ever be left on, a, on his own. In fact, the last verse is, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I think this psalm is really... Uh, well, it's an amazing psalm in so many ways, but I want to break it up a little bit because it the whole thing hangs on the first sentence. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Therefore, I shall not want. He is my shepherd. I shall not want. That metaphor of a shepherd runs throughout scripture from the Old Testament through to the New Testament. David was a shepherd king. He's described as the shepherd king. And the prophecy of, of Messiah incorporated that same image of a shepherd. Could somebody read Isaiah 40, verse 10 to 11? Isaiah 40. Now, I know you know these, this psalm, and I really would encourage you to keep your mind open because it's so easy to say, oh, I know this psalm, you know, I know this psalm. Just keep your mind open. Isaiah 40, verse 10 and 11. Someone read that, please.
Thank you. Now someone turn to John chapter 10 and read verse 11 to verse 14 because Jesus will take this prophecy, uh, uh, one of many prophecies in the Old Testament. John 10 and read um, verse 11 through to verse 14, please. Thank you. Um, I'll just read, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Sorry, Jess, I should have said verse 15. So Jesus takes the image that's painted in the Old Testament and he incorporates that in the way he describes himself in the New Testament. He's called in Hebrews 13, verse 20. Um, Hebrews 13, somebody go there and read Hebrews 13, verse 20, please. 20 and 21 actually. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Thank you. And then someone read first um, Peter chapter 5, verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Thank you. When the chief shepherd appears. I, um, I live, I, I don't know if you know, but I live, yeah, you mostly know, I live in the middle of fields. Um, some crops, but mostly sheep sheep farming and uh, I, when I first moved there I moved from Tokyo so you can imagine the shock to the system it was <laughs> and uh, I moved there and I was driving one day from my village to another village you may have heard this before I'm sorry if you have but I was driving and uh, there's a long straight part of the road and and further up in the uh, towards the top of that road I could see this man walking on his own and I didn't think too much about him then because lots of people walk in the countryside. But as I was driving along the right-hand side of me, there were hundreds of sheep and they were running really fast in that direction. And I, I, I don't know about sheep, of course, because I, you know, I didn't grow up in the country. I saw all these sheep running. What on earth's going on? And as I got closer to the man, I had to slow down because it's a narrow country road and it was the summertime. And as I got closer to him, I could hear him talking. He was just speaking really quietly and he was talking to the sheep and they were following him because it was feed time and they were running to get to be where he was. And if ever a picture has described to me Jesus being our good shepherd, it's that one. My sheep know my voice. Those sheep knew his voice and they ran for this shepherd. My sheep follow me and a stranger they won't follow. It was just such the clearest example to me. And they ran after their shepherd because they knew these sheep, something about their shepherd. And that's what David will talk to us about in this psalm. David knows something about his God, his shepherd. 
And the first thing he wants to say is, I will never need, want anything, ever, because my shepherd will always provide it. Now that understanding is, I think, crucial to the Christian life, to the resurrection life, because Satan always is attempting to describe God to us as someone who begrudges doing something good for us, who begrudges someone we've got to come to and plead with and beg for any sort of blessing or any sort of good thing. And that is completely the, the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Even in that... Um, do you remember that parable that Jesus told about a woman who wanted to come before this judge and she couldn't get in to see him as an unrighteous judge? She couldn't get in to see him, so, but she kept persisting and persisting until he answered her. She had to speak to people to speak on her behalf. And then finally he answered her. I've heard that taught as if that's what Christians must do. They must keep petitioning, keep going before God, keep begging him to do something for them. And Jesus says exactly the opposite when he describes what that parable means. He says, if an unrighteous God would take all that time, don't you know that your father will give you what you need quickly? He even uses the word quickly. There is no sense in the whole of Scripture. That's in Luke, I think. Luke, oh, Jane, where is it? Do you know you're nodding? But it's Luke 5 or Luke 19 anyway, somewhere in there. Um, we don't have to beg God for anything, anything good. God wants to pour out good things on you every moment of every day. He has to be stopped, if you like. You have to imagine a, a God who has to be stopped from blessing you. And no one can ever stop him because he longs to bless you. He wants to bless you with everything you need to live a life of security and safety and well-being and wholeness and peace and joy and all of that. And if you don't believe me, read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There is not one spiritual blessing that he has not already given you, already blessed you with. And if you don't have that understanding as the base for your life, you will constantly be begging God to do something that he longs to do. <laughs> Go ahead. Luke 18. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. Satan wants you to think that God does not want to give you good things. He wants you to think that he'll give them to everybody else maybe, but he definitely won't give them to you. He wanted Eve to think that. Do you remember when he came to Adam and Eve right at the beginning, Genesis 3? Did God really say you shouldn't do this? And then his, his, she said something and then he said, no, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, you will be like him. And what, what the inference is, God doesn't want you to have that good thing. He doesn't want you to have a good thing. And when Jesus is in the wilderness, when he's been led there to be tested and tempted by Satan, Satan comes at him with the offer of good things because God won't give him good things. Do you see what I mean? And it's to us. And what he will come to you with is something that seems good on the basis of 
well, why hasn't God given you that then? Because, I mean, that's a good thing, surely. And the implication is over and over and over again throughout our life, God does not want to give you good things. <coughs> and the reality is God longs, longs for you to know all good things. What does Roman, uh, Paul say in Romans? For, for God is for us, not against us. That he loves us. That his love has been poured out in us. Romans 5 verse 5. And hope does not disappoint. For his love has been poured out in us by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. There is absolutely nothing that God won't do for you for your best. Nothing. Now, will he give you everything you ask for? Probably not. Because you're going to ask for a lot of stuff that's not good for you. That's just the truth. But he will give you everything that will be good for you. And that's what we have to start off with and understand because everything else, Paul will call the doctrine of demons. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 to 4, he will say, um, well, let me read it. 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 1 to 4. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. God is the giver of only good things. Only good things. He we can. Uh, I think that we can assume that either it's not good for us right now, or that um, it will be better that it comes later because this is going to be good on the way here. You know, I think it's difficult to say because we're going to ask for something that seems good. Like, for example, uh, you might ask to have a child. Um, and, you know, you might pray and, and not have a child. And that seems like that can't be a good answer. It can't be. But there will be things going on there. You see, once you know that God is only good and only does the best for you, then what you come to is this understanding that somewhere in there, there was something not good going to happen. And so God prevented it. Now, I know that that's a, a difficult place to get to. So I think that's why the Bible goes over and over and over telling us God is good all the time. He only does good things and only gives good things. And the thing is, if you don't believe God is good, you'll never want to, to put your trust in him. Yeah. You see, that's where you have to come first. I read this. You tell me God is good. You're going to have to believe that, trust on it, and stand on it before you go through the rest of your life. And the rest of your life may not be or seem good because there's all sorts of bad stuff that might happen. But the reality is that God is working good. But that's the trust you, that's the, that's what faith is. It's trusting in what God says. So, um, 
He who is all-knowing, all-caring, all-powerful, all-loving, all-sufficient, who promises his grace is sufficient for us, who promises that no temptation or trial or test has seized us except that which is common to man and that he is faithful and he will never allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear but will always provide a way of escape that we can endure it. That's the God we put our trust in. We put our trust in a God who sees everything, who cares, a God who collects our tears in a bottle, a God who promises, never will I leave you nor forsake you. And then we live on that assumption, on that trust. That's what David did. You read through the Psalms. David did not have an easy life. He had a very difficult life and a very dysfunctional family. <coughs> he made plenty of mistakes, and he paid for those mistakes. But through it all, he said, this is my God. He is my shepherd, my good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, I've got some other references. Probably don't have time to look at them. Psalm 73, 25 to 26. Deuteronomy 8, 7 to 9, and 7. 7 to 9, both of those. You see, the thing is, uh, Psalm 73, 25 to 26. 26, yeah. The difficulty is, you see, that uh, we can't go too far with this, it's just as just said, because David doesn't mean that with God as his shepherd he could have everything that he desired. That's the thing. Because the basic thing that he's trying to say is that as one of God's sheep, he will lack nothing that is necessary for his best interest. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And he spoke of that in other places. Uh, Psalm 34, verse 10. Uh, Psalm 34, verse 10. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Psalm 84, verse 11, says more or less the same thing. Um, Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Um, he is a good God who only gives good things. And that's what David is saying. And then if you go back to Psalm 23, um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. So the first thing that he doesn't lack, he says, is nourishment. He makes me lie down in green pastures. So as a believer, as a sheep, called a believer in the Lord Jesus, how does he make you lie down in green pastures? If he is your good shepherd, and we would all say Christ is our shepherd, where do you lie down in green pastures? In his word. You lay down in his word. And he says... He makes me lie down in green pastures. So there's a sense of God's uh, almost pushing you to lie down in those pastures. Almost, he's leading you to those pastures. And then he's saying, right, stay there for a while and eat. Jesus said, didn't he, in Matthew 4, verse 4, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. The whole Bible, you know, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Um, 
God leads us to places where we can be spiritual, spiritually nourished. And he, he, of course, leads us to his word. Uh, Peter will say in First um, Peter chapter 2, long for the pure milk of the word. Um, Paul will say, or the writer to the Hebrews will say, by this time you should have been having solid food, but you can only take milk. And he's talking about the word of God. Um, and, he, and God will use other people to lead you to lead us to the uh, word of God for spiritual nourishment. So um, that's David's first thing. He makes me lie down in green pastures and then he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. What's the second blessing then? The first one is spiritual nourishment for, for growth. What's the second one? Yeah, restoration. And, but it's kind of spiritual restoration, right? You are already restored to God if you have believed in the Lord Jesus. You are reconciled with God. You have peace with God. But there is, you still live in this world and you still wander off and you still have times when you're not restored and you don't feel healthy spiritually. So he's saying he leads you to placid waters. What do the waters signify in the, wor- in, in the Bible? Refreshing, yeah. Cleansing, cleansing. You're cleansed by the washing of the water of the word. Again, it's, it's that he will lead you to calm and placid waters. So how might that play itself out then? I mean, let's say you are spiritually out of sorts for some reason. How will the word restore you to that spiritual, to that calm, restful place? Yeah, reassurance, and, and how will that, that's it. And one of those promises is First John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's how he leads you. What does it say? He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. And then the third one. Uh, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What are the paths of righteousness? The right way. Je- Obedient. Obedient, yeah. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So his way is the path of righteousness. It's the everlasting way. David will pray in another place, search my heart, God, you know, and lead me in the everlasting way. And that's the same as, as Jesus is the way. And it's this highway of holiness. It's this, this way of righteousness that Jesus will lead you on. And where does that way lead? To him and to, to heaven. To heaven. And in John 14, verse 1, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. Do not be afraid. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you. And he went on the way of righteousness. And now he's going to lead you that way. What are you going to do when you're on that way of righteousness, do you think? Follow him. And when you don't? Because you don't always walk the way of righteousness, do you? I mean, come on. I know you don't. I don't. So what happens when you go off the track? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
he gently brings you back. What did we just read that? He gently leads you back. That he's, He leads you gently back and pulls you back onto the way of righteousness. Why does he do that? Because he loves you, but according to David, for his name's sake. You bear his name. You carry his reputation. Imagine a God who would leave his reputation in your hands. Yes, yes. So he will lead you back. How do you know that's true? Because it's happened. Yeah. <laughs> because it's happened. I love that. I want to hear that all about that, Ruth. Yeah. But you know it's true beyond that, beyond your own experience, although that is wonderful. You know it's true because in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it says, For I am uh, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. You are standing on that word. Wherever you go and however far and whatever state you get in, Jesus will come and lead you back. Why? Because God has promised to finish what he started in your life. And Jesus says, doesn't he, when he, he's, he's there in the Gospels, he says, you know, doesn't the shepherd leave the 99 and go out for the one and bring them back? That's the picture of a good shepherd he will finish what he began. If you don't have that assurance, you need to ask God for it. Because he will give it to you. Because he wants to give you good things. <laughs> Gift, yes. Yes, yes. It's everywhere, isn't it? It's everywhere. What's the fourth blessing? Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Um, what's that blessing then? What is that blessing? Yeah, peace. But you, what, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there's a sense there of evil. And, you know, so what, what is the overriding blessing? What has God promised to do? Protection. He has promised to protect you. In First uh, Peter chapter one verse five, it uh, Peter tells us we are protected by the power of God through faith. So God's power protects us, and the rod and the staff. What is that for? Pulling us back, yanking us back <laughs> with the thing. Fending off other animals, um, leading us, you know, tapping us on the nose and telling us to go this way and that way. That's what it is. It's the guidance that God uses to lead us in the ways. And even though we walk through dark places, God is always there and he will always lead us through. Um, David knew the presence of God all the time. Even in desperate situations, he knew the protection of God. Psalm 20, um, I can't find my reference now. but um, And he knew, as we know, that God never leaves nor forsakes his people. Um, what about verse 5? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I've... Um, heard that taught that that's like a table with a feast of all this food on it. I don't actually think that that's right. I mean, it could be. 
but I don't think it's right because he's talking about sheep. Sheep don't sit down at tables, you know, and they don't eat trifle and Christmas cake and things like that. So I think that this is talking about uh, in those days, they used, the shepherds used to uh, mark out an area which they called a mesa, M-E-S-A. It sounds Spanish, but it was also that. And it was um, a safe place for their sheep and they would mark the edges of it with fire to keep the wild animals out. And the shepherd would keep his sheep inside that big area. It used to be on the plateaus as they were going up over the hills. And it would be a big area called a table or a mesa. And the shepherd would light these fires to keep the wild animals out. So he prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What enemies do we have? Who's trying to get to us? Satan. Satan's trying to get at us, and he'll use anything and everything to get in. It talks about, Peter talks about Satan is depicted as a roaring lion. Yes, prowling around, seeking whom he may desire. That's the picture in this psalm. Uh, Jesus will put his sheep onto this safe table, this mesa, and he will line it up with fire so that no one can get at his sheep. Yeah, yeah, I just can't think. I'm sure there's a lot you could take out of it being a table and a feast, and but f- I, I, for me, it's all about sheep. So, yeah, he's... Um, and it would keep the wild animals at bay. And then he follows it with, he anoints my head with oil. My cup runneth over. And when you read about shepherds in those days, there would be plagues of mosquitoes and flies and bugs that would come around. And the shepherd would actually pour oil on his sheep's head, on his head and around his nose, because the sheep was powerless, couldn't, you know, bat away the mosquitoes. And these little bugs would get in and burrow into his brain sometimes, the sheep, up their nose everywhere. And the sheep couldn't do anything about it. So the shepherd would take the oil and rub it into the sheep's head to keep them safe. Now, if the wild animals on the table, kept out of the table or the mesa, uh, indicates, let's say, Satan and the big animals that might come at us, the big enemies, what do you think this anointing us with oil is trying to show us picturing the niggly things yeah like the other christians <laughs> you know and the what Exactly. It's the all the little things. You know, he's, I forget where it is now, but little foxes fall the vines. Is that in Song of Solomon? Yeah. So it's that idea. You know, we can be quite strong against the lion who's prowling, but we get really hung up by the mosquito who's buzzing around us. And that's what he's saying. The show, he anoints my head with oil. And so what's the picture? What's oil then? In that situation, if we are those sheep being anointed with oil exactly it's the holy spirit it's the holy spirit anointing in first john he will say you have an anointing from the holy one we are anointed by the holy spirit and the holy spirit is depicted in that way as oil oil and so we have the the wherewithal the protection for all those little divisive things so what will the holy spirit do with those little bugs brian and i had a little um example of this today. Brian said something and I said something and he said something and I said something and it was like, you know, it wasn't, I don't mean it was big or anything like that, but it could have been. It could have been. 
Well, there wasn't trouble with Brian and I because we have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. And so what the Holy Spirit causes us to do is to understand these things happen. We're people. We're people who are longing to serve the Lord together. So we've got to iron this out. So he says something, I say something. Okay, he says something, right. Well, this is what I meant. What did you mean? And, and so we go backwards and forwards until it's ironed out because the Holy Spirit allows us that possibility that latitude and we take that possibility so we don't allow anything to burrow into our mind we don't allow that mosquito to bite us all over the place so that we can't stop scratching what we do is we we make sure that the oil of the holy spirit calms that <laughs> yeah you know, you know, i know yeah, 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 yeah. But I would say, Jess, that the reason I was able with Brian, because he is very irritating at times. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm only kidding. But the reason is not that he with me, because I'm very irritating to him too. But the, the, um, the reason that we can do it is because we have a good relationship with the Lord. I don't mean together. I mean with the Lord. So it's more important to Brian and to me individually to honor God than it is to fight our thing. And that's where we have to get to, all of us, isn't it? And if the person who irritates you isn't in that place, doesn't make, make any difference because you are. You're in that place. <laughs> yeah, it is, except it's not human kindness, really. It's Holy Spirit kindness. Yeah, I know. But so it's this oil then, this this ability that the Holy Spirit gives us or protection that he gives us to live together and to not be bitten and burrowed into by these, you know, nits or whatever they are. Those little bugs, they ruin relationships. They destroy marriages. They spoil families. They are doing that all the time. In the church, I'm talking about in the church. And um, we need the preventative cure, which is our heads anointed with the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 will talk about this uh, anointing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John, uh, Paul will say in Ephesians, you are light in the, in the Lord, walk as children of light. You used to be darkness, but now you're light. Walk as children of light. Do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, with the Spirit. And so then you will know the how to live the will of God and and he compares being drunk on wine with being filled with the spirit so what he's trying to say I think is that when you're drunk on wine it is very obvious if you meet someone who's drunk with wine they're under the control of alcohol that's what they used to say to it under the influence they used to say oh he's under the influence and you can see when someone's under the influence because they can't walk in a straight line and they can't speak clearly and they can't articulate what they want to say because they're under the influence of alcohol be filled with the spirit walk in a straight line say what you mean articulate clearly that's what he means. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit rather than anything else. And he uses wine as his example. Do not get drunk on wine. Do not be under the influence of wine. He's, I think he's also saying don't get drunk, but that's a no-brainer really, isn't it? So don't get drunk. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's that anointing by the Spirit. And we need that. We need that for, for to live. It's the Holy Spirit who brings forth the fruit in our lives. 
Um, and also the oil was also perfumed. And that's another thing. There is a perfume to those who are filled with the Spirit. Paul will say in uh, is it Second Second Corinthians, uh, yes, what was Second Corinthians uh, two or five? Yeah, maybe. Where is it? Um, um, but um, I can't find it in this new Bible because it's in the wrong place. It's never in the right place where I expect it to be. Second Corinthians chapter two, maybe. Um, No, not chapter two. Is it? Thank you. Thank you. Um, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? This anointing by the Holy Spirit has a perfume to it has an aroma to it and you recognize it as second corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 and 15 yes always manifests himself yes so have you uh been filled with the spirit have you been anointed by the Holy Spirit? And don't, I, you know, whatever you believe about the baptism of the Spirit, whatever you believe about being baptized, whether it's one time or two times or whatever, it doesn't really matter. Because when you read through Acts, what you, you read all the time is, and Peter, having just been filled with the Spirit, and Paul, having just been filled with the Spirit, and John, having just been filled with the Spirit, this is a constant thing that's going on. You know, people say you, hold, you have the Holy Spirit and then you leak. You know, <laughs> it leaks out. That's totally not true. And that is the wrong picture for the Holy Spirit. You do not leak. The Holy Spirit runs through you like a river of living water. And everywhere it runs, there's life. Everywhere that river touches, there's life. Because he is the river of life. And he is running through us. And it's that anointing oil, that, that protecting us and, and, and what's making us smell sweet to one another. And that's the aroma that God wants our life to be. And so he's anointed us with the Holy Spirit to do that. Have you, if you are not experiencing that in your life, that sweet aroma, and probably you can't tell because, you know, I saw Jess move her arm in front of Catherine's nose. And, um, you know, you probably don't recognize it in yourself, but that's a recognizable scent a recognizable perfume to those who know the Lord Jesus. If you feel that you're not filled with the Spirit, if your life doesn't exhibit that, if you can't recognize this river of flowing water, then I would say to you, you are either not born again, not a Christian, or there is an area in your life that God has pointed out and you have not surrendered. That's just it. God wants to pour out his spirit through you if that is not happening it's not happening because you don't believe and you don't have his spirit in the first place or you have not surrendered one part of your life to him 
I mean, a part he showed you, because otherwise you'll go nuts, won't you? Is there anything not surrendered? What's not surrendered? I thought I'd surrendered it all, but I don't know. So anything he's shown you, he showed me something on Saturday night and Sunday, and I'm not sharing it yet, because it's too bad. So <laughs> I've got to work my way through it first. I've got to work my thro way through it. But he showed me something that I think he's kind of shown me before, but he pulled it back the veil this time. And, and it's got to be surrendered. It's got to be surrendered. And it's amazing how hard it is to do that. <laughs> you know, even though you don't want it, it's just it's mine, really. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, but it's going to be surrendered because I want that. I want that being filled with the Spirit. I want that anointing, that sweet perfume of the Holy Spirit to be evident in my love. And I don't want any part of me that puts a block on that or puts the cork in it or whatever picture you have. I want that to be total surrender. So if you're not experiencing that, just look at your life. There's a place you haven't surrendered. The other thing with the way of course is that it's very healing. Yes, so thank you, yeah. 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 And I'm not talking about necessarily a physical healing. No. Obviously, on a sheep, that would have had a physical healing as well as a protective uh, yeah. barrier, if you like. Yeah. Um, but if the Holy Spirit is poured into you, He can do amazing yeah. healing within you. Yeah. You probably don't even know. I know. You need. Yes. But, you know, we've all got stuff. Yes. You know, Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Jane. Yeah, healing. It's healing. Yes. Yes. Definitely. Cleansing and healing. Yeah. But the healing balm. Yes. That's that's a good picture. Thank you. Thank you. And go ahead, Jane. Sorry. Poured out, yes. It ran down, you know, from his head on yeah. his beard and down his skirt. Yeah, yeah, it did. It was an all-over thing. An all-over thing, yeah. Yeah, thank you, Jane. And verse 6, finally, at the end of the psalm, um, what you get here is, you see, we're going to be taking, in this study of First Corinthians, First Corinthians is... is is there, there are three chapters in it about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and how he works and manifests through us, through believers. It's, it, it's, it's the biggest writing on the Holy Spirit in the whole Bible. And, and it's in this letter to this sort of church, which is amazing. And so we're going to be looking at that anointing oil, at the Holy Spirit. And, and so... Um, I think that it, we really need to understand that God is going to be revealing his character to us again through 1 Corinthians. And he's going to be showing us how he lives and works through us. And that requires a response. It always requires a response. And, and so uh, David in Psalm 23, he gets to the bottom of this psalm. And then he says, well, first of all, he says, my cup overflows. My cup overflows. There's nothing more than this. It's just overflowing blessing. But then surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. That's the response. I know that goodness and loving kindness will follow me, be with me all the days of my life. 
And he knows that based on what he knows about his shepherd. Do you know that about God? Really, do you know that? That, that his loving kindness and his goodness will follow you every day of your life. And that even when your life is finished here, it will have only just begun there. Surely, loving, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will never, ever, 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 ever stop being with Christ. I will live in his house. And he knew that that would be blessing on blessing on blessing on blessing. It would never stop being blessing. He concludes, I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Where is the house of the Lord? With wherever he is. <laughs> it's wherever he is. Where is he at the moment? He's within. He's in us. You're dwelling with the Lord while he lives within you. You are in him spiritually and he is in you spiritually. It's a connection. You're up there seated in heavenly places in him and he's down here in the muck with you spiritually. And that will never change. Why not? Why will that never change? Why will that always be so? Because he doesn't break his promises because God is faithful to his word. He's faithful to his promise. Um, he said that all those who have been born again are born again for eternity, that we will live forever, that we have resurrection life, that we are now seated with him in heavenly places, and that will never, ever, 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 ever change. No matter where you may wander, he'll always bring you back. I'm just going to finish. Um, yeah, I'm just going to finish with um, the statement, and I'm sure you know this already, but just in case you didn't, um, each of the Old Testament names for God are listed in this psalm. It's a very unusual psalm in that uh, all the Jehovah something names, not El Elyon and El Roy and some of those others, but all the Jehovah something names of God are listed in here. So you have Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He will provide. So it's that Lord, the Lord is Jehovah Jireh. The Jehovah Jireh is my shepherd, I will not want. You can, that the Lord will provide is first talked about in Genesis 22, 13 and 14. And it's talked about in terms of God providing a substitute for Isaac. So look up those scriptures because it's, you know, it's amazing when you see them in this psalm and how they pan out with the rest of the Bible. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord will heal or restore. And that's Exodus 15 verse 26. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is our peace. He restores my soul. That's Judges 6 verse 24. Um, Jehovah Sid Canoe, that's T-S-I-D-K-E-N-U, the Lord, our righteousness, Jeremiah 23, verse 6. Um, 23, verse 6. Jehovah Shammah, we saw in Ezekiel, the Lord is there. Ezekiel 48:35. These are all the names of God listed. If you went to a Hebrew translation of this psalm, you would find these names. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. 
uh, first talked about in Exodus 17, 8 to 15. And of course, Jehovah Ra, the Lord my shepherd. The Lord is R-A-A-H. So R-A-A-H. No matter, yeah, I've, got, I've, I've written here. Um, God has said that those who believe in the Lord Jesus will be saved eternally. <coughs> they, we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. We have an inheritance in heaven. We will never be forsaken. We are right now seated with Christ in heavenly places. Mine is a resurrection life, an eternal life, an abundant life, because the abundant, eternal, resurrected God lives within me. He, God never gives us anything apart from himself. You are not blessed with peace separate to God. You're not blessed with joy. You're not blessed with life. You're not blessed with abundance. And that's come to you in a bag and God's left it at your door. He has brought himself and he is those things. That's wonderful. Because you can't have the blessing without the blesser. You can't have the gift without the giver. It's all in Christ Jesus. Okay, so that's the beginning of the look at First Corinthians and it will take a, quite a long time. There are 12 weeks more to come and um, I really hope that you enjoy pulling it apart and hope that you enjoy doing it. I think it's going to be really great um, and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so, Father, I'm going to pray to finish and then I hope that we're going to have um, a little bit of time for fellowship and before we must head home. Thank you, Lord, that um, you are building us into your church, your body, that we are being put together as living stones. And thank you that we're being built on the foundation of Christ or on the a foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus, the cornerstone. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you, Jesus, that you live within me, that you live within us, all of those who call upon your name and trust in you for their salvation. You have taken up residence within us and you have brought all of these things. You have brought our righteousness and our peace and our joy and all of it, Lord. And you have said that that is available to us because you are available to us. We, we live eternally. We live this resurrected life because you have been resurrected and you live within us. It's so wonderful, Lord. David says that these things are too wonderful. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Who could attain to it? But Lord, you want us to understand this and so you pull us closer. And I thank you so much that you do and ask you, Father, to keep on pulling us closer and closer. Keep on connecting these threads for us so that we can fully understand what it means to live a victorious Christian life on a planet that is desperate for that sort of witness. I ask you, Lord, to help us with that. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.